Welcome to Sovereign Grace. I'm glad that you're here. If you will, turn with me to Genesis 19. This is like part two of last week's sermon, and so we're going to continue in the text. Last week I read Genesis 19, 1 through 11, and we talked about these angels, the two angels coming into Sodom and warning Lot and his family. We talked about the nature of the sin in Sodom, the people being overrun by sinful idolatry, pride, indulgence, and ultimately sodomy, homosexuality, after which they pursued these angels. And we kind of left it there. God is coming in judgment on Sodom. And I said I had some other points I wanted to get to. And so we're going to pick up from there. After the men are, even though struck blind by the angels, they're still groping at the door, wearing themselves out doing so. We'll pick up just after that in verse 12. So read with me from verses 12 through 29. Then the men said to Lot, the men being the angels, by the way. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place. Because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me, and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, 
God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him and ask his help and understanding. Father, we recognize in this devastating scene of your judgment upon wicked men that you also extended your hand in great mercy toward Lot. We pray that you would help us understand this text, that your spirit would speak to the churches, that he would give us ears to hear what your son, the head of our church, is saying to us in the word, and that we would be transformed by it that we would repent where we need to repent, that we would confess our sin, that we would trust in Christ, and that we would not be like Lot's wife who looked back and so was destroyed, that we would trust in Christ all the days of our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week I said that we needed to learn the lesson of Sodom via four remembrances. And Just in verses 1 through 29, we'll pick up verses 30 and following next week and continue to learn these lessons. But I said first, the first remembrance was that we need to remember Sodom. I argued that God's wrath was already present in Sodom before his full judgment came upon them. And how was it present? Well, due to Sodom's idolatry, pride, and indulgence, The Lord had given that city over to her sin. The Lord's judicial hardening had come upon their hearts and their minds were corrupted. And we see that particularly in the embrace of widespread homosexual sin. And I took you to Romans 1 and talked about how God's wrath is presently being revealed when God gives us up to our sin gives us over to a corrupt heart and mind. I went into the nature of Sodom's sin last week and God's judgment, a regional judgment, not a global judgment as with Noah and the flood, but a regional judgment. Further, I made the point last week that clearly God's wrath is presently upon us. Presently upon us, not them. We can see God's wrath and turning us over to all manner of wickedness. We're constructing personal identities around our wickedness and demanding that everybody celebrate it. Friends, this cannot, I want you to hear this, cannot be fixed by mere political victories. We need the mercy of God to remove his judicial hardening from our collective hearts and minds and to bring spiritual reformation and revival. Sovereign grace, God is not mocked. Jesus will soon return with his recompense in his hand. Thus, we need to remember Sodom. And the New Testament uses Sodom in just this way. We need to repent and look to Christ before his return on the great day of judgment. Today I want to look at three more remembrances. So the first from last week is remember Sodom. Today I want to look at three more remembrances. First, remember 
Lot's sons-in-law. Second, remember Lot's wife. Now, that's just out of Jesus' mouth. I stole that point from Jesus, if you want to give him proper credit. Remember Lot's wife. And third, remember Lot. Remember Lot. So let's look first at Lot's sons-in-law. Look at Genesis 19, 12 through 14. As the angels are sending Lot to get his family out of this city before God's judgment comes upon it. Then the men said to Lot, these two angels who appeared as two men, said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we're about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Now, these are his sons-in-law. They were to be married to his daughters. If you remember, his daughters earlier in Genesis 19 had never known a man. They had not yet consummated this. They were betrothed, and in this sense, they were his sons-in-law already. But they had not yet consummated that. He goes to them and tells them this. So Lot, verse 14, went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. Now notice this, but he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. They thought it was a joke. They're being warned about the judgment to come by their, if you will, father by covenant, and they think it's a joke. Children, I want you to hear this, because we see this pattern over and over again in Genesis. I want you to hear this, children. God covenants in Genesis with households, with families, but that does not guarantee their salvation. Lot's future son-in-laws, by betrothal, that's how there is future son-in-laws, rejected God's salvation. They laughed at Lot's warning about the coming judgment. In this sense, they foolishly did not listen to the voice of their father. Solomon calls upon his children to listen to him again and again in Proverbs. Listen to one of Solomon's calls to his sons or his children. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Children, when your parents instruct you from the word of God, teach you the truth about God's word. Teach you about Christ and his work for you. Tell you about God's law and hold up in front of you the wisdom of God's word. You need to listen to them. You need to listen. Be attentive. They're offering you life. If God has given you Christian parents, and if you're being raised in a Christian church, then the Lord has blessed you richly. You must listen when they point you to God's word. I do not mean, nor does Solomon mean, you should listen to everything Your parents ever say, even if it's foolish, and you know your parents sometimes say foolish things. I mean, 
And if you don't know that yet, you'll get it in your 20s at some point. Sometimes everybody's a sinner. Your parents are going to struggle. They're not always speaking God's word. But when they do, you need to listen. You must heed their warnings as they proclaim Christ and his word to you. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them. And Lot's sons-in-law did not listen to him. He was a righteous man, according to Peter, calling them to salvation, and they ignored him. They mocked him. I just want to emphasize this. Children growing up in a Christian home and a Christian church and learning Christian doctrine does not equate to salvation if you do not believe. Yes, God promised to be God to your parents and to you, but his promise is to save. Listen, his promise is to save all those who trust in Christ. If you do not trust in Christ, to quote Hebrews, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Impossible. Yes, the Lord had regard for Lot's family as the Lord does, but this does not remove their personal responsibility in any regard. God graciously holds out his hand to our children, but children, if you slap it away, then the penalty for such behavior will be upon you. But let's move to our next remembrance. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife, verse 15. Look at verse 15, 17, and then 23 through 26. I'm just going to pick up a few here. Verse 15. As the morning dawned, the angels, that's the two men, urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Now go down to verse 17. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Now listen to this. Look at that text. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. Now go down to verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Lot and his wife and his daughters were expressly warned, flee the wrath of God and do not look back. Do not look back. What does it mean that Lot's wife looked back? What does it mean? This does not mean that Lot's wife was curious about what judgment in Sodom looked like And, you know, curiosity killed the cat. It's not what it means. Rather, it means that Lot's wife was not truly repentant. She was not really repentant. She loved this present world. She longed for it more than she desired the Lord. Jesus warns us not to be like this. Luke 17, verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. 
Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Therein is the sin of Lot's wife. She sought to preserve her life in this world, and so she lost it. There's a parallel to this in another teaching of Jesus in Luke. In Luke 9, 62, Jesus said, listen, Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. If you look back, that means your greatest treasure really is this world and all that it offers rather than Christ. Christian, there's a difference between being repentant and struggling against the love of this world and being sorrowful about sin yet remaining in love with this world. Lot's wife chose the world over the Lord even in the face of God's clear judgment. In the end, Lot's wife refused to leave Sodom. Her looking back is a refusal to let go of this world And to be a sojourner and stranger longing for heaven. We're going to deal with that even more next week with Lot. When one of Paul's closest companions, Demas, left the faith, Paul commented upon it this way. Demas, in love with this present world, abandoned me. Friends, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The Bible's clear. Repentance is a whole-souled act. Christ is your all in all. You repent of your sinful desires, your sinful thoughts and acts, your love for this present world, and you give yourself up wholly to God. You submit to all of God's word. Every command is your desire to keep. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree firmly planted by streams of water whose leaf does not wither. This means you love even the hard commands, even the commands you don't like, if you will, that are tough, those that cause some kind of even fear in you. What do I mean by that? What I'm saying is, This is repentance of all sin without remainder. Without remainder. And the hardest sins to repent of are often not the most obviously egregious ones like murder or adultery. Jesus comes to this in in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? He's going to explain the full meaning of the law rather than the formalistic externalism the Pharisees were committed to. You heard it was said, do not murder. I say to you, what? Do not hate your brother or call him rock a fool. In other words, do not demean someone in your heart. You heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, what? What does God in the flesh say to you about his own law? I say to you, don't lust after a woman in your own heart. You see, what Jesus is saying is, some of these externals which you're able to keep up as a good show for everyone else, don't impress the Lord who sees the heart. 
And he knows what's actually happening down in there. Those commands are hard. They're some of the hardest areas. Some of the calls for us to be like Christ are difficult. Look, be joyful always. That's a command. How many of you keep that well? Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. All circumstances. If you don't understand how hard that command is, you haven't lived long enough yet. Give thanks in all circumstances. Or how about this one? I was thinking about Matthew as I went along. Forgive the repentant sinner and restore them gently, as Paul will say in Galatians 6.1. Affirm your love for them and comfort them, as Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 2 with regard to the sinner who was put out of the church for some pretty gross sin. And now he's repented and Paul says, even though he's hurt you, draw near to him. Comfort him. Reaffirm your love for him. I can think of few things harder among God's commands than comforting the repentant sinner who's harmed me. Drawing near to the repentant sinner who's harmed me. The apostles get this, don't they? Because they ask Jesus. So we're supposed to forgive, but how many times? Isn't seven enough? Someone comes and repents and asks for forgiveness, you know, et cetera, and I forgive them. How about seven times? That seems pretty gracious. And Jesus' response, 70 times seven. Jesus does not mean when you get to 491, they're done. And then he goes on to tell a parable of a king who forgave a man much, comparing it to us. And then that man turns around and won't forgive someone else little in comparison. You know what the next passage is about? Marriage and divorce. You think Matthew arranged it that way accidentally? Friends, forgiving the repentant sinner and restoring them gently and affirming your love for them and comforting them, that's hard. But do we not see Jesus doing that with Peter? At his resurrection, what's he asked? Have you told Peter? And then what does he go to him and do? A man who betrayed him on his lowest day. What does he do? Seeks him out. Draws near to him. He knows he's repentant. He reaffirms his love for him and restores him. We must obey the hard commands like being kind and speaking graciously and forgiving and gently restoring the repentant sinner and not letting our eyes fall upon evil and obeying the authorities God has placed over us. All things that we seem to struggle with and justify. But are we willing to repent without looking back? Are we willing to, you know, if you give yourself over to someone who's sinned against you and then you forgive them, draw near to them, restore them gently in their repentance? It's scary. Are we willing to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly in that? Or will we continually seek out self-protection and push that person away.
I'm talking about repentant sinners here. I'm not talking about people who are continuing in their wickedness. Jesus is not saving anyone who's looking back. He will not save one person who looks back. If you want to cling to this world and then get a little forgiveness at the end, then that is not the repentance that issues from saving faith. In other words, if you want all the benefits of Christ, but you do not want him, and if you want to give him certain parts of your life that are easy for you to give up, while you guard the parts that you only entrust to yourself to protect, then that is not the repentance that issues from saving faith. Rather, you're like Lot's wife. You're looking back, and you will not be saved. That's how Jesus can say of the man who forgave little, that he was cast into hell. You might say, in fact, I know when I was working on this, I internally said, it is impossible for me to let go of my love for this present world and cling to Christ and said, it is impossible for me to reach that standard. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. That's why it must be a work of God's supernatural grace. And this is also why, I want you to hear this, this is also why repentance from the love of this world is not a one-time event after which you return to a normal life or after which you're wholly sanctified and perfect. Rather, it is a daily act. Moment by moment. I hope you hear that. I am not arguing that true believers repent one time and then never struggle with sin again. I'm arguing that true believers are continually repentant people. We say the same thing about our sin that God says and we repent of it. Because we're in a spiritual war. We're in a spiritual war for our own hearts and minds. We're continually repenting of our love for ourselves in this world. And here's where I want to press this. If you had a religious experience years ago, even a religious experience in which you said you believed in Jesus, but your life is not one of continual repentance. Hear what I just said. I didn't say if your life is not one of continual perfect holiness, you should be striving for that. But if your life is not one of continual repentance, a sense of the continual need for the Lord and his grace, ongoing thankfulness for his grace, with a corresponding desire to be in his presence and worship, to obey his law because you see that it's good, to be among his people because they're your people, then whatever experience you had, it wasn't conversion to saving faith. Saving faith, the grace of faith, produces this fruit. When God gives the grace of faith, you are repentant as a lifestyle. And you're thankful. And you love him and want to honor him. And you love to be near him in worship. And you love his law. And you love his people. I'm just going through passages in 1 John, by the way. If that does not describe you in any way, then you need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ and flee from the wrath to come. Now, at this point, I'm sure that some of you saints here are rattled 
particularly those of you, I'm going to use this word carefully. I want you to hear the way I mean it. Particularly those of you who are weaker brothers and sisters in this regard. The guilt of sin and the kind of conscience, the very developed kind of conscience you have, leads you to often fear that you're not really saved. Right? There's some of you like that. No matter how much you're walking in repentance and faith, you're constantly fearing that. And so I'm sure the example of Lot's wife rattles you. Now, there are some of you who are rattled because you basically said, I believe in Jesus, but I'm going to live my life however I want, and I'll just get a little forgiveness at the end. And you've heard me say clearly, that isn't saving faith. You aren't saved. You need to repent and trust in Christ. If you're rattled, great. Repent and look to Christ. Some of the rest of you, I hope, that our next remembrance will soothe your soul, if you will. I hope it will soothe you. Remember righteous Lot. That's our last point. Remember righteous Lot. I want to consider Lot. As we consider Lot, I want to think a little bit about his history. Without walking through all the relevant passages, I just want to think about a little bit about his history. He was the nephew of Abraham. If you remember, his father had died, but he was placed under Abraham's authority as a member of Abraham's household. Thus, he heard the promises to Abraham and his family, of which he was a part, in Genesis 12. He traveled with Abraham until they parted ways in Genesis 13. When Abraham gave Lot a choice of land, this happens in Genesis 13, Lot chose the Jordan Valley, which was well-watered like Eden, Genesis 13.10. He moved away from where God was dwelling with Abraham, and he moved to that wicked city, Sodom, Genesis 13.12-13. And Moses is already telling you there's something fundamentally wrong with Lot. He's making bad decisions. He did not want to dwell in tents with Abraham as a sojourner. He wanted to put down roots in the city, even a wicked city like Sodom. Lot became a leader of some kind in Sodom. Look at Genesis 19.1. Genesis 19.1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Many scholars, I don't know most because I haven't read all of them, many scholars argue that the sitting at the gate in Sodom indicates that Lot had some sort of leadership post in the city. Minimally, he was a highly respected man in the city. In the city of Sodom, where all the men, young and old, were given to homosexuality. A city that's filled with pride and indulgence and idolatry and wickedness and doesn't care for the poor. A godless city. Lot called the people of Sodom his own brothers. Look at Genesis 19.7. Genesis 19.7. And said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, he tells them. So he's, a, he's calling the people of Sodom his own brothers. 
Lot sinfully pledged his daughters to marry among these wicked people. Genesis 19.14. They're pledged, they're given over to marry these pagans. Lot, even more wickedly, offered his daughters to these perverse men for them to abuse sexually. Genesis 19.8. Look there. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. This tells you that sometimes cultural conventions with regard to ethics aren't good. They're wicked. And Lot is going to participate or attempting to participate in a wicked act. Let's be really clear. It is not moral, permissible, for Lot to offer his two daughters to be sexually abused by a crowd of men. It's not okay. It's as wicked as it sounds. If it afflicts your conscience, it should. Should. While Lot has not totally lost his moral bearing, he has been deeply perverted by living among the Sodomites. Bad company truly corrupts good character. Further, look what Lot does on the day of judgment for Sodom. Look at Genesis 19 and verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Here's the command. God's judgment's coming. Look at the first phrase of verse 16. But he lingered. Lot lingered. And what happened when the angels told Lot to then flee to the hills? Even in the face of judgment, Lot tried to barter for a place in the city. Look at verses 17 through 22. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. Listen, this is angels talking to him. Who he just saw blind every man, old and young, in the city. Get out. God's judgment is coming. I think I'll linger. I'm not in a hurry to go. Go to those hills. I've got a better idea. Look at what they say. And Lot said to them, verse 18, Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. You've shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills. More like I will not. I cannot escape to the hills. Why? Lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to me to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. To paraphrase Derek Kidner, a scholar, he said, Lot's self-regarding pursuits and his slowness to remove his grip from them Lot's self-regarding pursuits and his slowness to remove his grip from them led him to living in a wicked place, a place that clearly violated his own conscience, a place that corrupted him in a number of ways, a place he's hesitant to leave. Further, even after leaving Sodom, Lot participates in wicked sin with his daughters. We'll look at that next week. But let's also note other characteristics about Lot. 
righteous Lot was deeply conflicted about living in this wicked city. Do you notice that? His conscience is tormented by their sin. 2 Peter 2, 7-8 through 8, calls him righteous Lot. I, that's, you read this and you think, how is he righteous Lot, don't you? But the Holy Spirit tells us he's righteous Lot. And it tells us that he was deeply conflicted about living in this wicked city. He's tormented by what he sees and hears with their sin. Torments him. But he lingers. He begged the angelic visitors. Another good thing about Lot. He begged the angelic visitors to stay in his home. Not in the town square. And he wanted them to leave early. Look, you have to stay in my house. Not out there in the town square. And you need to leave early. Get out of here as quick as you can. And he makes them a feast of unleavened bread, demonstrating he's in a hurry to get them out. You see that in verse 2 and 3. In fact, this scene reads much like the Passover and the Exodus, where Israel needs to be ready to leave quickly. And she's going to have unleavened bread. Lot shows hospitality to strangers, doesn't he? Out of his love for neighbors, as a righteous man does. Hebrews 13.1. Lot was a man who judged the behavior of the city to be wicked. Genesis 19.9. He calls their behavior wicked. And they accuse him of being judgmental. You understand how that goes. Lot never complained that God's justice is somehow unjust against Sodom. Lot does ultimately depart and Lot does not look back. So Lot is a, if you will, a mixed bag, isn't he? He's a mixed bag. He's a man who is conflicted by his faith in the Lord and is longing for the security and the pleasures of this world. Yet it was the will of the Lord to save him. Thus, even Lot's weak faith is the grace of God to him. He has a weak faith in a mighty Savior. His faith is a repentant faith. Lot departs and does not look back, yet Lot remains a conflicted man. So what is the basis of Lot's salvation? What's the basis of it? Look at Genesis nineteen sixteen again. But he lingered. He lingered. He doesn't immediately obey the command to flee God's judgment. He lingered. So the man, that's the angels God has sent, seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. The Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. The basis of Lot's salvation is the Lord mercifully rescued him. He literally grabbed him by the hand and drug him out of the city. Friends, God in his mercy has grabbed you by the hand and drug you out of the depths of your sin. You don't just pat yourself on the back, even if you have strong faith or weak faith. You don't pat yourself on the back 
you recognize, if it were up to me, I would have lingered in this present world. I would have stayed behind. I wouldn't have fled the wrath to come. God mercifully grabbed him and pulled him out. Sheer mercy of God. This isn't even about Lot's cooperation here, is it? It's about God's grace. Saving a man. A man as conflicted as Lot is. Further, look at Genesis 19 and verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Remember, he stood before the Lord and prayed for the city of Sodom, interceded if there were any righteous men there. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. And sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out. Lot was a member of Abraham's household. The Lord had made promise to Abraham concerning him and his household. This is the same language in Genesis 8.1 when God remembered Noah. Thus he saved those on the ark he promised to save. Further, Abraham interceded for Lot and for Sodom, and the Lord heard his prayers. Think of this, parents. If the Lord saves your children, he's remembering his promise to you and hearing your prayers. He's hearing your prayers for your children. If the Lord saves the Horner children, I'll pick them because you know Russell from preaching. If the Lord saves the Horner children then the Lord is remembering Russell and Ashley and hearing their prayers. The Lord is hearing their prayers for their children. Please hear this, Sovereign Grace. The Lord saves people who are a mess. He just saves people like Lot who are a mess. And the life of faith in Christ is continually repentant Because we're continually in a fight against our own sin, against the world, against the flesh, and against the devil. And Sovereign Grace, God does not save you once you've cleaned up your whole mess and become perfected in sanctification. The Lord saves the ungodly and unrighteous by faith. He takes those lingering in this present world facing judgment by the hand, and in his mercy, he drags them out of the judgment to come and saves them in Christ. And the Lord announces to those who've trusted in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. I don't know if you hear that. You will struggle against flesh and blood and against principalities and powers, but the Lord will never relent of his love for you. Where sin abounds, his grace abounds all the more. So look to Christ. Look to Christ. And find comfort for your souls in him. He is enough. He's enough. Let me pray. Father, we ask...
that you would help us to trust in Christ, to be continually repentant for our sins, to be grateful that you mercifully dragged us out of sin and death to life and righteousness and salvation in Christ. We give thanks for this work. We pray that you would remember all the Christian parents here, hear their prayers for their children, their children would be saved. We pray, Father, that you would be pleased to cause those who are not trusting in Christ to trust in him. To repent without any remainder. To not look back. To live a life of continual repentance. Fighting against the temptations of the world and the flesh and the devil. Casting themselves upon Christ. And hearing over and over the verdict. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We pray for all of us. That we would walk in holiness. Grateful for the grace that we know knowing at every stumble that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Constantly looking to Christ, walking in faith and repentance, loving your law, loving to draw near to you in worship, loving your people, the church, honoring you with our whole lives. We pray that you would help us with this by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.